Good evening. This is Cinema 60. You have been chosen to take part in a great mission as the instruments of my destiny. No! 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 When my father gives an order, you will obey or die. Centuries ago, an ancient race conquered this continent. Now their secrets are mine, and with this knowledge, I shall master the world. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. It's another bootleg Bond episode, or at least it's time for one anyway, but that's not quite what we're doing this week. No, you actually kicked up such a fit (laughs) about bootleg Bond. I don't think anybody blames me for my continual fits about bootleg Bond. Well, you put your foot down and you said, I'm quitting this podcast if we do another bootleg Bond and I'm going to kill myself on screen. And I said, look, don't do that. You pick whatever you want for the next bootleg Bond, and you picked a sort of bootleg Bond adjacent figure, right? Yeah, well, it's a 60s, a well-known 60s series that would not have happened, or at least would not have happened the way that it did if it weren't for James Bond, because it was kind of sparked by the the whole supervillain aspect of those movies. Dr. No in particular, maybe. Cheap-ass producer Harry Allen Towers, who's kind of the British... Roger Corman, independent producer who buys up like semi-respectable literary properties. Sax Romer, in his case, you know, sort of like how Corman bought up all the Poe properties and made semi-legitimate movies out of those. Harry Allen Tower said, oh, people love Chinese supervillains. Let's make some more Fu Manchu movies. So uh, we're going to talk about Christopher Lee as Dr. Fu Manchu in his series of five films that he made in the 60s. We're also throwing in a couple of Sumuru movies that are another, or like the female version of Dr. Fu Manchu that Sax Romer also wrote in the 20s through 50s. And I have to say that in watching all seven of these movies as quickly as we could, I think I finally understand what you felt watching the Bond movies because I was ready to gouge my eyes out after like the first two of these, like this made me question my love of cinema. (laughs) Good. Then this experiment was a total success. My villainous plan succeeded. But what's funny too, is that all the ones that you hated are the ones that I liked, I think. No, I think we were pretty much in agreement with these, except I think I kind of liked them in general more than you did. I hated the, I I absolutely (laughs) hated these so very much. They were the most boring things I've ever seen in my life. Never mind the overt, like, yellow face racism, yellow peril kind of crap. I mean, all of this, like, you know, it's not anything new for the 60s for sure. And I knew what we were getting into when we started watching these. But, oh, my God, like, just the pits, man. This is the pits of cinema for me. And I like Christopher Lee normally. You must have loved when these devolved into like 
pure sexploitation. But they didn't. Like on top of the yellow face racism stuff. They didn't. There's just nothing. There's nothing enjoyable here. Uh, and on that note, we're going to spend the next hour <laughs> <laughs> talking about these movies. I mean, look, they deserve to be watched and spoken of just because they exist. And they, uh, you know, they're definitely a cultural touch point. Like this is something that, you know, it's a character who you can bring up now and people still kind of know what you're talking about to some degree. And I don't know about the younger generations, but it's a it's definitely a archetype supervillain. And especially, I mean, the, the fact that all of these end with like, you know, that wasn't the last of me. I'll be back. Yeah, every everybody's heard of Fu Manchu which is impressive considering that nobody's made a movie about Fu Manchu since the 60s. And if you ask most anybody, they haven't actually seen these movies, except for possibly the last one on Mystery Science Theater 3000. One of the the movies that I will actively uh, recommend you watch the Mystery Science Theater version instead of the original. (laughs) (laughs) Except that one wasn't even the worst of these. It wasn't. It wasn't. But so what's the, why, why did you choose this again? You had some reason for choosing this. Well, it's not a, a, a very exciting reason, but I'll tell you the story. Yeah. I am a big Eric Romare fan, and I saw, I think it was the first sex Romer Fu Manchu novel on my father's bookshelf when I was visiting for some holiday. And I, uh, I was like, oh, I should, I should give this a read. This will be fun. And I picked it up and uh, it was just, I read probably 40 pages of like the most vile, racist garbage. Well, not garbage. It was kind of <laughs> like in the same way these are fun. It's like elevated trash, but with the disadvantage of also being horribly racist. But uh, I could not figure out why my favorite filmmaker chose to name himself after this particular author, but I'm glad I, uh, I finally experienced some of Sax Romer, but it got me thinking that, oh, they made these Fu Manchu movies in the sixties. And that seems to me they're kind of linked to James Bond because of the whole supervillain aspect. And so I did a little research and it, it definitely you know, is the case that this Fu Manchu revival happened because of, Bond mania. So I suggested to Jenna, well, how about let's get away from these Euro spy centric James Bond ripoffs and, and let's focus on a series that's about the supervillain. That's all there is to the story. Like, which book did you pick up? I don't remember. I mean, there's got to be 500, I'm guessing, right? There are like three big ones in the original run, I guess, in the 20s, and they got adapted into comic books and stuff and like movie serials and sax romer was like oh people are interested in this character i'm gonna start writing more and then he did a whole bunch more after that and it actually apparently he sort of got away from the yellow peril stuff a little bit and started to make dr fu manchu a more conflicted character a little more interesting uh, in the later books whichever one i picked up was one of the first three and it's pure you know Boxer Rebellion inspired fear of uh, Chinese people killing all the white people in the world, even though white people are the superior race. And it very clearly states that in several places in the first 40 pages of whichever book I read. 
Well, I didn't even realize, you know, until this, that Sax Romer is, is like just some British guy. That's not his real name either. Even funnier to me, because I'm, I guess, cruel, is that he died of the, quote, Asian flu in 1959. All right. Yeah, I did so see that. So Fu Manchu got his revenge. I was going to make a point of not mentioning that fact, but I'm glad you brought it up. Why? <laughs> I don't know. The most famous author of Yellow Peril novels dying of Asian flu. It's a little on the nose. Truth is is a terrible script written by an even worse scriptwriter. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, these Fu Manchu books were turned into a bunch of movies, like in the 20s, silent versions, and then the early 30s. Warner Oland, who played Charlie Chan, played him a few times. Boris Karloff played him in The Mask of Fu Manchu in 1932 or something like that. And then there were no film versions until Christopher Lee picked up the mantle in 1965 when uh, Harry Allen Towers, who uh, he was a like a radio and TV guy who in the early 60s decided, I think I want to produce some movies now and just started making these cheap films became a like a one-man production company and did a lot of like international productions like all these movies were co-produced with west germany in order to fund them and get distribution in uh, in west germany he uses a lot of german stars in all of these for that reason and uh you know just like go from place to place you know different different locations different countries using uh cheap labor to make these things and you know finding whatever tax havens he could and, and just cranking stuff out. He wrote the scripts for every single one of these films that we watched under the name Peter Welbeck. And so he he is truly the author behind all of these films. Uh, he, he's kind of an interesting guy. He's allegedly he uh, was involved in like he, he was a pimp for British uh, politicians for for a while you know, acquiring high-class prostitutes for people who needed to keep these things extra secret. Seems legit. That's all alleged because he, any charges that were uh, brought up against him disappeared. That's more incriminating then. <laughs> <laughs> he really, he started out trying to make legitimate, low-budget, classy, literary adaptations, and uh, he did a lot of Agatha Christie too. But as the 60s progressed and more more sex was allowed in movies, he, he definitely delved into the sexploitation by the end of the 60s. That's all he was doing. Hooked up with uh, Jesus Franco, Uncle Jess, and the two of them made bunches of sleazy movies together in the late 60s and early 70s. But uh, all we're going to talk about tonight are his uh, Sax Romer films, starting with The Face of Fu Manchu in 1965. Directed by Don Sharp, who directed the first two of these Fu Manchu movies. Christopher Lee plays the titular 
Dr. Fu Manchu, the most evil man in the world whose uh, goal is to take over the planet, rule everybody. In this first film, he tries to do it by creating a gas out of uh, some Tibetan poppy seed. Just a, a drop will kill an entire village. And he says, give me the world or I will do this you know, again and again to larger and larger populations. There is a, a, a pretty disturbing scene in this film where he does, he unleashes his poison gas on a, on a small British village. And you've got, uh, you know, the streets are just littered with corpses, including children and old people and dogs. But I guess I'm not starting at the beginning here. At the beginning of the film, Fu Manchu is, we see him executed. Our hero in these films and in the novels is Nayland Smith, who's kind of a rough and tumble Sherlock Holmes type. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> I wish he was. He's like a shoe. If you, if you like just shot a shoe for, uh, you know, five minutes and then like dub dialogue over it, that's who this fucking Nayland Smith guy is. Well, there are three different Nalen Smiths in these five films, and the, the first one they got was probably the best and does resemble Sherlock Holmes the most. He actually seems like he has a, a brain in his head. He's a Scotland Yard commissioner or something, he, you know, some some big old policeman guy who um, has been after Fu Manchu his whole career and has finally witnessed Fu Manchu being executed. Nalen Smith is there at the beginning of the film when we see Fu Manchu get his head cut off in China by the Chinese authorities. And he's like, finally, my reason for being is, is done. And uh, I can go and be a, a boring detective back in England now. But uh, of course, he's, you know, every little thing makes him think, oh, my life is boring, uh, you know, without Fu Manchu. And, and maybe this latest crime is actually uh, Fu Manchu's doing. And his, uh, his Dr. Watson, who in this case is named Dr. Petrie, who's actually played by the same guy in, in all of these movies, uh, just as this bumbling doofus, Howard Marion Crawford, is the Watson to uh, Nayland Smith's homes. And um, Petrie is like, oh, you think everything is Fu Manchu's doing but you saw him killed yourself so how could it possibly be well we find out soon enough that Fu Manchu actually was not killed and <laughs> am I spoiling anything if I say no because it happens in every single one of these movies every single one of these movies is the same formula yeah at, at the beginning of every one of these movies Fu Manchu is presumed dead and Nalen Smith says Petrie I think Fu Manchu is still alive and he's behind all of these awful crimes that are happening you know, and then we see the first of the Fu Manchu kidnapping the beautiful young daughter of a scientist so that he can extort the scientist into creating some awful world-killing machine or gas or something. And that happens in every single one of these movies. A young, beautiful daughter is uh, is kidnapped, or multiple young, beautiful daughters are, are kidnapped. There are no mothers in this entire universe. It's always fathers and daughters. And every scientist in the world has a beautiful 22-year-old daughter. Yep. It, these are set in the 20s, so it's uh, they're set when the original novels were written. So that's kind of interesting. That separates them from Bond, but otherwise, it's these are really pretty similar. It's a lot of 
gadgetry, ridiculous plans for taking over the world. Fu Manchu's daughter, Lin Tang, played by Sai Chin, is in all of these. Thankfully, actually Chinese. <laughs> it's fun to see her show up in all of these. She's uh... she's actually great. I, and I wish that she did more than stand there and look cute. But yeah, well, she's sort of really inexpressive and in that, uh, you know, conveys her cold evilness really well. But uh, she doesn't get much juicy acting to do, but she does get to dress up as an old woman several times. And she's actually she's much more active in the field than Fu Manchu is. Like whenever anything needs to be done, Lin Tang is, you know, goes out and does it. So it's kind of cool for that reason. She's the one who's doing everything with Fu Manchu just sort of sitting on his throne, pulling the strings. And that's kind of the formula for all these things. The problem with this movie. So now the, by the first movie, I was like, okay, it's a little bit bootleg bond. It's like a little bit horror. You know, it was watchable. But I mean, the problem, obviously, is that, you know, this this movie, it, you know, it just shortcuts to everything. It, everything is about like showcasing that Fu Manchu has a plan and we rarely get to see the plan in action except for in the last like half hour of the movie, which then it kind of picks up again. It's usually just about he has a plan and he's kidnapping a guy and then the guy says, no, I'll never do it. And then he says, I'll, if I torture your daughter, you will. And the guy says, oh, I guess I'll do it. You know, it's like that. Like, that's it. And I mean, never mind the fact that this that these movies have to, you know, they obviously have this shortcut that if it's a Chinese person, they're automatically evil. So if you don't buy that concept, you're already missing out on half of the thrill and excitement, quote unquote. I mean, it's just like it's racist and lazy. And then, I mean... The people we're meant to be rooting for are also really racist, like overtly racist and so boring, just so, so boring. They are old, stodgy British dudes. I wish it was Sherlock Holmes who was being the racist. <laughs> I wish there was anything. No, it is like guys that are standing around like this first movie has a scene where they're like keepers of the Museum of Oriental Studies. And they're literally like. You know, oh, no Chinese can break into the Museum of Oriental Studies. And you're like, all right, like, you know, and then and like the next like joke that lands is is like that they all of these Fu Manchu henchmen come in and, uh, you know, attack everyone. They all have to defend themselves. And at the end, he's like, you've left the ground littered with dead Chinese. And you're like, dude, like, <laughs> like, this is just so awful and so terrible that you're this it, like with the little tinkly orientalist music and plus they don't say chinese they say much they say slurs you know what i mean like it's not like the worst of the worst kind of slurs but it's just all just so oriental is about the worst that they say but the the it's just it ugh, ugh. <laughs> and this is even cleaned up so that Asian Americans wouldn't get upset about uh, these films because when the original series of films came out there was a lot of protest a lot of Asian Americans were up in arms about like the the Boris Karloff one saying that you're know, portraying all Chinese people as evil and inhuman and this is no good. And that's a big reason why the Fu Manchu character went away for a while, I think. And like and then, you know, World War Two came and uh, and it was cool to hate Asian people again. <laughs> well, China was on our side, so there was a lot of disgusting Japanese caricatures, but China was on our side, so we didn't want to do anything to upset China. 
Well, the British don't need any excuse to be racist. I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's built in. I mean, look, the thing too, I, I you know, this Fu Manchu, and, and, you know, we'll go through all these movies, but there's obviously some degree of respect that we're meant to have for him. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't cast such like an erudite actor to play him. You know what I mean? Like, he's not a fool and he's the, he's the smartest guy in the room. But of course, that in itself is its own racial stereotype. <laughs> it's like they like if they did this to appeal to like, you know, the British Asian or American Asian community to not offend them. And they were like, look, we're not stereotyping you. You're all like really, really smart and evil, you know, and it's like great. Wonderful. Love that. But just having the Chinese government execute Fu Manchu at the beginning of the first movie, I think, was you know meant to pacify. It's like, oh, we're not saying that Chinese people are evil. We're just saying this one particular Chinese person is evil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and uh-huh. also, and these are not good movies, so I don't know why I feel the need to defend them. But I feel like there is some need to sort of distinguish between the the vileness of these films and the like extreme vileness of what came before. Yes. Christopher Lee has eye makeup that tries to make him resemble a Chinese person. He's wearing Chinese clothes, but nothing about his performance is really a Chinese caricature. He doesn't, he just uses his normal British accent. He's like, there's a little bit of, um, he talks very precisely. That's the only way he sort of gets across that he's a foreigner but uh I, I don't think it's a good exercise to rank racism like that. I mean, like, I get what you're saying. It, it wasn't <laughs> in some in some misguided white British way. It is not trying to be racist, but it doesn't mean it isn't overtly horrendously racist. I mean, like there is really inexcusably racist uh all around. But I was actually far more offended by the German guy playing the Chinese import guy in this first movie than I was Christopher Lee in any of these films like that. Well, was it's appalling. easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm not an Asian American, so who am I to say what's offensive or not offensive? But this German guy playing this character that could so easily like he's not even a famous actor. He's not like, you know, I see the the reason for you know why they used to put name actors in yellow face so that you know there's they'd be a, a box office draw but this guy is just some german guy that they said okay and you're chinese in this movie and he's a horrendous stereotype it's easily the most embarrassingly racist thing in all of these movies but anyway i'm sure we'll get back to the racism at the end of this episode and talk about it a bit more but at this point we can just sort of take for a given that these are terribly racist films I just thought I sort of needed to get out of the way the distinction between this and earlier, even worse versions of Fu Manchu. I don't think there's that much of a distinction. (laughs) (laughs) The second movie is Brides of Fu Manchu. directed by Don Sharp. Who's actually a decent director. 
he he did these first two and they look the most like movies of any of these. Like they almost hold together like real movies. I'm sorry. I just wanted to jump Absolutely in. Absolutely not. He is <laughs> Bart is 100% wrong. The first two of these are the worst things I've ever watched in my life and they made me want to kill myself. In the second movie, Fu Manchu is back and he's sending his daughter Lin Tang to kidnap daughters of scientists and politicians or whatever and and he's hiding them in a bafflingly Egyptian style dungeon that's clearly a reused set from something else. And they're all there, of course, just so that they can blackmail the said scientists to build a death ray that functions over radio waves, which Fu Manchu will, of course, use to later take over the world or, you know, whatever he's doing, (laughs) kill everyone and then take over the empty world. I will note that my like favorite cartoon as a child obsessively favorite cartoon was Pinky and the Brain and it is not lost on me that like this is the same formula. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, so for this movie what you've got in this one is like a bunch of ladies tied to pillars and a cool radio tower that transmits death but looks like a lotus flower that was kind of neat. You got more guys impersonating guys, but this time it's like this like doctor that Fu Manchu is looking for that they capture, but it's really a guy pretending to be that doctor and nobody knows, but he ends up being like the man in the cages with the girls and gets the inside information, even though this is the twenties. So there's no way for them to actually get that information out of there. I don't really understand (laughs) why they did it. And yeah, you know, and eventually he gets found out. And then it's like a dozen women in party dresses and lingerie fighting guys in ninja costumes. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's also what all of these movies dissolve into. And Oh, and there's like a whole ship that gets murdered in this one, which is kind of the most clever gag of the entire film. Like That is kind of smart. Yeah, they, they're saying like, you know, we're going to blow up the Windsor Castle. And so all the policemen go running to the castle and they realize, oh, no, it's the ship that's named the Windsor Castle or whatever. But yeah, that's that whole movie. (laughs) What's so wonderful about this, Bart? Tell us, please enlighten me. I think they've got these first two have production value, I guess is all I mean by Don Sharp being a pretty decent director. Like he's given nothing but crap to work with. Harry Allen Towers like has no interest in making any of these plot mechanics work at all. Like so much doesn't make any sense. You know, the way that he'll have characters misunderstand a situation, be led down the wrong path and then figure it out. Like the way the plot moves is interesting enough, but he doesn't do like Towers doesn't do anything to make any of it convincing. But Don Sharp, I think, you know, is a professional enough filmmaker that you don't notice as much in these first two films, how incredibly stupid these movies are. I noticed. I think. Listener. Or how incredibly cheap they are. Like, I think the location shooting looks pretty good. They make the 20s look pretty convincing. You know, you, you wouldn't mistake either of these for, you know, a Hollywood movie made at this time. Or even like a Hammer film. Like, Hammer Studios films were clearly larger budget. The first couple, especially the first one, actually, is does sort of lean into the horror aspect a bit. You've got a woman flunky who uh, 
you know, tries to free one of the prisoners and she gets drowned in a really disturbing way in the first one. They sort of bring in more or less horror from film to film, but, you know, they're sort of feel like hammer movies and a slightly lower budget. But these first two, the Don Sharp directed, you could be forgiven for thinking that, oh, maybe these are hammer horror films. I mean, it feels like Hammer because of the fact that they are, they're on a set that makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> that's, that's what it feels like. I mean, the only and there's no horror in this one, though. I mean, the ship sinking is really bad footage. The The best scene of quote unquote horror is like Lin Tang uses her like, you know, Vulcan death grip to brainwash these women into like carrying the other women and drop them in a snake pit or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good but like that's not scary i mean there's nothing scary about any of this no not this one the first one i'll give you does that it has some legitimate horror beats in the first one which is why i thought like oh okay like it's gonna be bond but with more horror and no characters and then i got to the second one and i was like oh no it's just nothing it's just, it's just <laughs> literally nothing happening for hours well for whatever reason i was slightly less bored by this one than i was the first one uh, and I think the first two look like legitimate movies and, and none of the rest even flirt with seeming like major motion pictures. They just seem like exploitation trash after this. But uh, the next movie, we jump to the first of the Sumeru movies, which is, uh, as I was saying earlier, Sax Romer's variation on the Fu Manchu character, except she's a woman. In the book, she's a contemporary of Fu Manchu. In the movies, they actually decide to go even further in the direction of bootleg Bond and make these set in the time they were filmed. So this is set in the mid-60s. 1967, it was released. John Teff is the director, and this movie is just so unbelievably incompetent. I think this is the movie that we really disagreed the most on. You had... Yeah, this one was watchable. The first two aren't. No, this this was... <laughs> I've never felt like I was wasting my time so much as when I was watching this movie. It's totally witless spy spoof, I guess, in quotation marks just because uh our heroes played by frankie avalon and uh somebody named george nader as uh tommy and nick who do something for the u.s government cia or something but they're sent to <laughs> i don't remember <laughs> shirley eaton as sumaru she's the bond girl who gets covered in gold and gold finger she's trying to take over the world and all of her flunkies are female and in a nod to the Fu Manchu movies the flunkies are all dressed in black and red they're dressed in black with red headbands and that's how you always know who the mastermind is behind all of these crimes because they never think well maybe if I change the uniform of my flunkies people wouldn't know immediately that I'm the one behind everything pulling the strings Although I guess in Fu Manchu's case, he wants everyone to know that it's him. So I guess that's why. Yeah, nothing happens in this movie. 
This movie opens with a man getting his like neck broken between a woman's thighs. And you're telling me nothing happens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, several women sit calmly in a room uh, in chairs and watch them on the floor. That happens in the like first few moments of this film. And the only other exciting thing to happen is uh, Klaus Kinski shows up as President Boong, (laughs) who is like somehow mixed up in all of this. They're like trying to seduce the like all these like powerful men in the world. And that's what Sumeru is sending all these ladies she's trained to like go do. And Klaus Kinski's character there, she's like, for some reason, we just can't get through to him. And, and like, you know, we need to get a man in there to introduce my lady so that he trusts because he's just too powerful and clever. And then we meet him and it's like an obvious gay gag. That like, you know, that the reason why he's not, you know, there these ladies can't get through is because this dude's like, a, you know, <laughs> not besides being an absolute weirdo is like pretty coded homosexual. Yeah. So Tommy and Nick run around and crack unfunny jokes. Wilfred Hyde White shows up as somebody who's behind everything. Colonel something or other. And he makes even worse jokes. And People are running around, firing guns. This is everything I hate about the bootleg Bond movies, but even worse somehow, because they don't even try even the slightest bit to make a movie here. It's just a bunch of junk thrown together. That's exactly what I like about it. Like, like literally, I like how it feels like a lab made this movie. Like, it completely misunderstands humanity. Like, the fact that every single woman is just like ready to drop everything to like kiss any mediocre looking guy that comes by. Like these are all these trained assassin women, but they like see one dude who looks like, you know, you could meet him on any street corner and they're like, Oh, you have to kiss me. I can't stand it. You know, it just, it doesn't make sense on any planet. There's nothing sexy. There's nothing clever. It's just pure ridiculousness. And it's completely half-assed. Like, you know, like it's trying to be like Bond and it's trying to be even like Man from Uncle. But it's like it's taking all these like aspects from things that are successful. And it has absolutely no understanding of what makes for a successful movie or what a human being is. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I like it. You are making it sound a a lot more fun than it is. But it's not. It's its own world. It's so far removed. It's like it's amazing in like a cringe comedy way. And yeah, it's not fun. This is like a bad movie. <laughs> and it's so TV quality. Like there's such a drop from the last movie yeah. to this movie and the next one. Like it really does look like a Man from Uncle episode, these next couple of movies. But with no charming people. It's just just terrible like archetype shithead guys trying to like shoot off sexist jokes left and right, which is again the best part of this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like Sumeru's whole thing, she is somebody's, you know, sexual fantasy of a, a strong, intelligent woman who only is like clearly also coded gay and yet is always trying to seduce all of these men. And this idea that like, you know, you'll become the mistresses and the wives of the most influential men in the world. And when they control the world, you'll control them. And then she like pistol whips all of her ladies or whatever. <laughs> like, 
Um, great. Brilliant. Love that. Again, not based in anything on this planet. And that's why I'm very into it. But um, Frankie Avalon inspired casting. Everyone in this movie is doing their best Dean Martin impersonation. And they're <laughs> failing so hard at it. These movies make the Matt Helm movies seem so clever in comparison, yep. though. See? <laughs> <laughs> I respect its dedication to sheer bullshitting. Like, this is the most, like, half-assed movie ever, and I appreciate that. I mean, half-assed is right. This movie was clearly just made... I think I believe it was filmed at the same time as the next movie we're going to talk about, The Vengeance of Fu Manchu. They're both shot at the um, in Hong Kong in the Shaw Brothers studio, and they've both got nice Hong Kong settings. The The location stuff is nice. But it's like Harry Allen Towers said, oh, we're shooting this vengeance of, uh, of Fu Manchu movie and we've got a little extra time. Let's crank out this other piece of garbage just to have something to put on the market. It's like two movies for, you know, it, it's a it's a Roger Corman technique. It's like, oh, we've got some extra days. Let's shoot this this whole other film. And that, then we'll have two movies to show in the drive ins rather than just one. And this movie really feels like an afterthought. Well, The Vengeance of Fu Manchu, which is 1967, as you just mentioned, uh, this is one that was simultaneously shot, directed by Jeremy Summers. This one has, uh, has actually has a pretty solid opening because we're in that cool castle, as you mentioned, like we're actually in China. And Fu Manchu and his daughter, they line up three guys in a row and they kill them. And the first one gets his neck broken and the second one gets his head chopped off. And for the third one, Lin Tang is like, for him, I suggest a slower death. And so she like, you know, she steals his will again with her Vulcan mind meld and she makes him strangle the fourth guy who's also lined up. And now they have this like zombie guy. But the plot is that basically Fu Manchu's finally going after Nalen Smith directly and his plan is to kidnap a famous doctor and his daughter, of course, mm-hmm. and force him to do like complete plastic surgery makeover a la seconds <laughs> to turn this Chinese dude that they brainwashed into Nalen Smith's like doppelganger, aka like an old British guy. So that they can, you know, send it out into the world and ruin Nalen's reputation. While they kidnap the real Nalen Smith and then let him watch as his reputation gets ruined and then murder him for good measure or whatever. (laughs) And then there's some San Francisco gangster that Fu Manchu was calling in to work with him or something. I don't even I couldn't understand what the plot was there because at this point I just wasn't paying attention. (laughs) This one may, in fact, be my favorite of all of these movies, but Fu Manchu's plot is almost completely incomprehensible to me like outside of having the fake Nayland Smith murder somebody so that he's executed by the law in England and his reputation ruined I don't know what Fu Manchu is trying to do like this San Francisco gangster is there to see Fu Manchu in action or something so that he can go back and convince this you know crime family that Fu Manchu should be the leader of this international crime syndicate or something which seems like a step down from running the world but you know what 
At least he has goals, right? Yeah. I really don't know like how any of these plot pieces are supposed to fit together, but uh And then there's an American FBI agent who looks like a true bootleg bond, but he he also doesn't he just like disappear? I don't remember even what happens to him. No, he shows up. Like there's always this sort of younger strapping guy who's like not young by any means. He's like, you know, 40 or something. He's always kind of the bond type figure in all of these. It's like some German scientist in the first couple. And then you've got this like CIA American guy who has a British accent. Who Yeah, who has a terrible American accent. <laughs> and he has a really similar name to the agent in the million eyes of Sumuru. So I feel like they might be the same sex rumor character, just in different eras. Maybe. Um, that's my guess. But yeah, you've always got this younger guy who's more of the action hero type. And a lot of the times when somebody's being chased, it's this other guy rather than Nalen Smith, who's more of a like procedural type detective guy. But the action hero is this some, um, you know, this this fresh you know, like man from uncle, uh, you know, just just new face for every episode who who gets to be the hero. And it's this guy in this one. We, and uh, Harry Allen Towers wife shows up for the first time in this one. Maria Rome, who goes on to star in all the rest of these films, I think she's just a you know, drop dead, gorgeous Austrian woman who is incapable of making any facial expressions. <laughs> And uh, she's a like a singer. She's the girlfriend of the San Francisco gangster who then ends up singing in a Hong Kong bar and gets brought by this German guy that she's sleeping with to the castle of Fu Manchu. And, I, you know, none of it makes any sense. I don't understand what's going on. Whereas in The Million Eyes of Sumuru, not understanding the plot just made me more upset with it. I, I think I actually enjoyed this one more just because it was so kind of incomprehensible and, and nuts like just all these disparate elements that didn't seem to fit together at all and uh, there's also a um this is the one with the cool hong kong detective right uh, inspector ramos oh for like five seconds though <laughs> he but he does some kung fu in this like he's kind of a an action hero too like he he actually gets more action than the the american guy mark weston I mean, this movie, I, this one actually does some stuff kind of okay. I like zombie Nalen Smith, who we get to see <laughs> right immediately post-surgery, which, I mean, the, I think the surgery in general is the best part because it's the most ridiculous. The doctor is like, you know, it, the, 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 no point is the doctor saying this literally isn't possible. Instead, <laughs> he's like, this would be really painful. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, they show him, like, Fu Manchu shows him the guy is virtually a zombie, and, and then the doctor's like, well, all right, I guess, you know, it's like, what the and i mean like fu manchu's thing with nayland smith is legit like he has some line where he talks about how the goal is to undermine the system and bring down the police by shaking people's faith in the system and you're like all right that's all right i'm listening man <laughs> like let's talk about it but yeah otherwise i mean i just dissolves into the same old crap i mean i actually on one hand this movie feels like it has the formula down to the best that it could possibly be while still including every single aspect of everything. Like it has good location shooting and, you know, it spends a lot more time with Fu Manchu than it does with the boring British people. And it also finally realizes that you need like some kind of supplementary villain. 
uh, who was that gangster and like I, I don't like the gangster didn't make any sense to me but I, I was just happy to see someone who looked like he had something to do you know because otherwise it's just so static all these things are so static and nothing happens or it happens in the same way every single time did we mention that at the end of all of these he he's in a palace that gets blown up every single time like where is he getting all in palaces Oh, he just hypnotizes people and they give him their palace, I guess. And they always blow up. Yeah. And Nalen Smith is, well, eventually he realizes, yeah, I just, there's no way anyone could have possibly survived that, but it's Fu Manchu, so he's probably going to show up in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back. Yeah, I mean, I like the, the zombie Nalen Smith thing was good. I like that. And then he, of course, has to kill his Chinese maid who, what's her, her name? like Jasmine. Well, her name is Jasmine in this one, who is different than Lotus, who shows up in all the other ones. So he's got a Chinese servant, Nalen Smith does, and her name of is Lotus. But in this one, because his maid gets murdered, it's a different actress and a different character name, this named Jasmine. Maybe they thought there were some big Lotus fans out there and they'd be upset to see her <laughs> killed. So they got, got a different Chinese maid and for this one i don't know but it's this movie's nuts and it probably is the best one it doesn't look as professional as the first couple but the location stuff in china is great and if it weren't for the fact that it was repeating verbatim so many plot points from the previous two movies i would have rated this even higher but having to sit through the first two to just get a lot of the same thing in this one Exactly. Took the shine off of it for me. And what a shine it would have been. But yeah, in 1968, Harry Allen Towers decided he wanted to make another one of these. He had a plan to make six with Christopher Lee and only ended up making five. So I think, you know, it was kind of driven to make these things, whether they were good or successful. He was just, damn it to hell, I'm going to, I'm going to make another Fu Manchu movie. And the only idiot crazy enough to make one of these that I can find is the director, Jesus Franco. Uncle Jess, as uh, his legions of devoted fans call him, is just a schlock exploitation director from Spain who makes really sleazy movies that don't make any sense. Really boring. Like, I, he, he doesn't know how to make a movie that progresses forward in any way. Like, I will admit, like, his, his fans say... Yeah, but within all the like boring garbage in all of his movies, there's a, there are always these like amazing sequences that only Uncle Jess could make. And yeah, I see that, but I, I am not that kind of a movie watcher. So I just thought this one was straight up boring with some shocking stuff in it. This movie definitely goes into R-rated territory. There's nudity and gore and just a lot of sleaziness in it. Fu Manchu has discovered a lost city in Brazil, deep in the jungles of the Amazon, uh, where there's this snake whose venom, if he has the snake bite the breast of a beautiful woman, she will then carry that poison in her lips, and when she kisses somebody, will transfer that poison to that person making him go immediately blind and then killing him after three, five days. I don't know. It's it's kind of vague how long it takes for the 
person to actually die. That's a real thing. That's real. It's real. The kiss of death. Uh huh. Yeah, that's a real. That's like a very. You know, that's like really serious stuff. Well, next time a beautiful woman uh, knocks on my door and wants to immediately kiss me, I'm not gonna do it because she may be trying to kill me with snake venom in her lips. <laughs> that's that's what you tell your wife. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and which is what his uh, his first bride, I don't know if they're brides in this one, but he's just got a cave full of all sorts of naked women. Women in party dresses. They're always like, they were clearly kidnapped from some sort of soiree, and then they get stripped down to half naked. But they're always in these party dresses that are like totally getting wrecked because they're being trekked through a jungle. But it's also like very funny to me. <laughs> like just per they're like beautifully dressed every single time. Well, he sends this this the first one off to kiss Nalen Smith. So uh Nalen Smith spends the entire movie blind in the jungles of the Amazon. And Petrie actually has a little more to do in this one because he can actually see. Maria Rome is in this one again, is a different character. She's the niece of the scientist who's trying to find this lost city to discover this kiss of death poison himself but Fu Manchu finds it first I'm not I don't even remember what he needs a scientist for in this one but he he does it again he like tortures some scientist's daughter until the scientist does whatever it is that he needs him to do and I really they might not even explain what it is he needs the scientist to do in this one. They just know that that element has to be in a Fu Manchu movie, so they include it. And then there's also this, uh, like, Pancho Villa-type bandito character for no reason at all that they spend a lot of time with, just this disgusting, sweaty, overweight, sadistic bandit who has this crew of awful banditos that he leads and um and extends like the racism from just only being about asian people <laughs> to being about like south americans at least the stereotypes yeah but jesus is uh spanish so he can get away with it right okay they're european european <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh so fu manchu is kind of frustrated because he's tried to carry out some nefarious plans and these bandits keep getting in his way. So you've got uh, two sets of evil groups in this movie that are kind of up against each other and uh, which leaves the good guys with very little to do except eventually stumble onto the, the lost city and, uh, and beat up a bunch of Fu Manchu flunkies and blow up the hideout. There's a studly German explorer guy who's uh, trapped in the governor's mansion for uh, a week to play chess with the governor. I'm not sure what that's all about. And there's like a lot of like really cute little like garter snakes that get like rubbed on women's cleavage uh, <laughs> as if they're biting her. And that's like, it's like the cutest little snake you've ever seen in your life. And all these women like screaming and flailing and the snake like clearly looks upset. <laughs> <laughs> You've got some sexy dancing in see-through dresses. Yeah, a lot of naked ladies, uh, actually naked ladies, and they're all getting tortured. Mm -hmm. 
Sumeru shows up as uh, not Sumeru, I guess. I, th- I think the idea is that Shirley Eaton was filming the next Sumeru movie at the same time, and uh, some of the footage didn't get used, so Towers cut it into this movie where she's, you know, your guess is as good as mine what this this agent of Fu Manchu is trying to accomplish with some other person, but it's just cut into this movie. And it looks kind of cool. It's got like some late 60s, like mod style to it. Clearly not part of the 20s-ish aesthetic that the rest of the movie is going for. You know, I you can tell for sure that there is a more involved director, or at least a more like modern eye of a director who's shooting this movie than any of the previous films, because you're actually like, you know, the camera moves. <laughs> uh, it does a lot of zooms, but it also actually moves around. It's not as static as all the other films. But not in any sensible way, in insane ways. Well, I mean, like, I kind of like there's that scene where that bandito guy, I think it was him. I honestly, like, I, that, the, all of these characters are the same character to me in this entire movie. Like, I couldn't tell you Fu Manchu from the bandito. Like, they're, everyone in this movie is one character. But they're like where he's like posing around all these statues. You remember that where it's like he keeps like it's almost like he's doing this weird dance and he kind of keeps like peeking out and from different (laughs) like jaunty angles and saying like in your under arrest. And it's like this bizarre. (laughs) Oh, it's almost like like a scene out of Twin Peaks where it's like, why are you acting this way while you're delivering these lines kind of a thing? And I was like thrilled to see that initially. But, you know, it's just that, uh, unfortunately, you have Jess Franco as, as an involved director, and yet all he has to say is, naked ladies. You know, like, that's it. There's no other message. <laughs> it's just more nudity, more, you know, men being yucky. Great. More nudity. Like, that's it. It's just the most boring shit. And I don't... I, how many of the Jesus Franco movies have you watched? I've I've seen, like... Besides the ones that we watch for this podcast, I've only seen one and I really didn't get it. But I'm not totally put off by him, even though I don't think he's going to be he's not really for me. I think I had seen one Venus and Furs and just remember being bored by it. I saw a virgin among the living dead. And I think I thought I was getting like a giallo adjacent kind of a film. And I just didn't understand it. (laughs) I mean, it had like, you know, I had those cool sequences. And they were they were neat, but like I just yeah I don't know I I have to wa- I want to watch some of his more popular movies and see how I feel. But a- as far as like his presence on these movies, I don't. I was like it's sort of welcome, and yet it like yeah they're just so bankrupt and boring that it's like if you do the math, like you think he's ahead, and then it all adds up to be- basically being about as crappy as all the other ones we watched. The most unforgivable thing about this movie is how boring it is like i found it the hardest to sit through not because it's like torturing women the whole time but (laughs) that's the best part (laughs) (laughs) but because it was just boring and it thought oh well throw in some boobs and people are gonna love it they're gonna think this is the best fu manchu yet like i i think this was i don't know i don't know if it was worse than the million eyes of sumuru but uh i i found it even harder to sit through than that movie well i ended up liking the next movie 
uh, which he directed, which is The Girl from Rio. The Girl from Rio is every man's desire. One quick look sets a poor man's soul on fire. He longs to hold her in his arms. Which is 1969. And this is, again, a Sumeru movie. <laughs> I wish that that meant anything. It doesn't. And they call her something else in this, like Sunanda or something. Sunanda. I don't know why, but she's clearly supposed to be the same character from the last Sumeru movie. And Yeah, it's Shirley Eaton. Yeah, I don't... I mean, like, the this movie is all like jazzy sets and the plot li like literally doesn't matter it, it there's a secret city made up of like militarized presumably bisexual women <laughs> called Femina and it's run by old Sumeru and that's it that's the plot you know like the rest of the shit doesn't matter like that's all you're coming to see there's like a secret agent named Jeff Sutton and he's carrying around a briefcase that has a stolen $10 million and he's being used by multiple people. Like he's working for the government. I don't know. There's this guy named M Macius. What's his name? Yeah. George Sanders. I forget. Yeah. His name, and he, and he like, like lives in like a glass mid-century modern living room by a pool. <laughs> like, and he's surrounded by henchmen who do his bidding. Like he doesn't leave that room, right? He's just like always in this room with this girlfriend. Who's the best part of this movie? <laughs> I loved his, his accountant girlfriend. Yeah, she was good. Irene. And, and uh, you know, yeah. And he'll be like, say like there's some lady in the pool who's swimming and he'll like tell his henchman to go like drown her or something. Like I, I have no idea. And then there's Sumeru who she kidnaps Jeff because like that's how they've, they've funded and continue to run Femina. Like their local currency is kidnapping dumb men and stealing their millions. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like the best part about this film is just seeing all of these like, you know, quote unquote high tech torture devices that range from having like several hot, half naked, desperate ladies making out with you on like, what what I presume is specific chakras on your body that, you know, it's like almost like the orgasmatron, like it feels so good. It hurts. Uh, and like, and then there are other, the other side of it is like a ray gun that melts your organs. <laughs> yeah. Which is clearly just a, uh, a dental x-ray machine. Yeah. That they say, okay, now moan in pain because this is melting your organs. Yep. Yeah. All the prisoners are held in like large glass tubes in like purple rooms that are lit with red light and look like they take place in space. And there's like a ton of bossa nova music because also it kind of takes place in like Brazil or something again. Like yeah. Well, this the Femina is shot in Brasilia, so it might as well be shot in space because that city is crazy looking. And yeah, that's the entire plot of this movie. I mean, like this one to me was sort of a joy to watch just because it's just baffling. Like, I, and I think if I had watched this first, I would have had way more fun. But I actually ended up watching this last, even though it's not the last movie that we're going to talk about. And I could, like, barely keep my eyes open. <laughs> it just never realizes its potential. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it feels the first half. I was thinking this is the greatest movie I've ever seen, but then it just keeps going on and on. All of these things lapse into tedium. I, I don't think Jess Franco should make feature length films. I really just <laughs> needs to, or somebody needs to make the ultimate Jess Franco scene compilation film and just show us everything we need to see from his movies because there's a lot of amazing stuff. But then so much of it is just boring and he clearly doesn't care about plot or characters or anything. I can't believe it took Fu Manchu episode for us to start advocating for like TikTok watching of <laughs> movies. <laughs> We're like, actually, film was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I just there were things in this movie that haunted me. Um, there's full frontal nudity in this movie, like straight up. And it's like the weirdest version of that. It's like a lady who's rolling around in, in fog as her organs get vaporized. Felt a little like connected to burlesque somehow. So it seemed like they, maybe they could get away with it or something. Well, that's like there's this other lady who always has something up her crack. <laughs> oh, <laughs> her, uh, yeah. you know who I'm talking about. And you're like, she's fully naked, but there's like something sticking out of her butt. And you're like... <laughs> What the hell? Well, and she's got like this V of leather, uh, like her entire, all she wears is this like, we're talking about the same character, right? The like love slave of Yeah, like first she's sort of in this almost lingerie-esque thing that I guess is being held in by her like ass. Like, I don't (laughs) understand. But then later on, she's like naked, but there's still something in her butt. (laughs) I, I... I don't. I, I don't think a lot I. Of time thinking about this. I didn't pause and zoom in the way you did, so I don't know. About that. <laughs> I was just. I was fascinated by whatever was sticking out of her ass. I'm like, this is why I don't know what was happening in this movie because I was too focused on what these ladies were were wearing or or really were not wearing. Uh, there's a lot of makeout murder in this movie. I appreciate that in any film. I love there's a great line where Simmeru is like, if one of my girls isn't perfect, she must die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she Shirley Eaton is really pretty fun as this character. She really hams it up. She seems like a, a Batman villain. There's not enough of the lady army. I mean, like I could have watched several scenes of their her like how to be irresistible to men classes <laughs> where they're like all these guys that, that came and, you know, foolishly. And they're keeping in like glass tubes and then they like use them basically to test out their how to seduce a man thing, which of course it ends in murder. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, brilliant. I'm, I, I loved Femina. Yeah. Maybe this wasn't meant to be viewed in one sitting. You're supposed to just watch it in pieces, watch it in like on TikTok, <laughs> 15 minute chunks or something. I don't know, but it- yeah. Or like on like Twitter gifts. It's like the sort of thing where you see screenshots and you're like, wow, that looks amazing. And then you watch it and you're movie? like, oh, shit, I, I was asleep. What did I miss? <laughs> this one definitely shows off what Franco was capable of more than any of the other films we watched of his. Yeah. But uh, I needed it to be more of a movie. Uh, the final film, also another Jess Franco, uh, The Castle of Fu Manchu.
what ended up being the final Fu Manchu movie. Also 1969. This one's set in Istanbul. Fu Manchu has got this machine that freezes water. So he's going to freeze all of the water on the earth with this machine unless all the world's governments allow him to take over. There's not really that much going on in this. Like, like any of these Just Franco movies, plot is completely irrelevant. Characters completely irrelevant. You're just kind of tuning in to see what kind of crazy stuff he might do. There's a Turkish drug lord who is somehow allowing Fu Manchu to... Like, they work together so that Fu Manchu can take over this castle in Istanbul, which then becomes the titular castle. There's a pretty cool Turkish lady villain played by Rosalba Neri. She's rad. Yeah, she's really cool. She's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, very early on, she gets captured and uh, they kill all of the other Turkish flunkies, but they keep her alive because, I guess, because just Franco realized, oh, this actress is kind of fun. People will be sad to see her die. So, yeah, she's, there's no reason for her to be in this movie, but she just kind of runs around the castle and in the dungeon in the, like, green and purple gel-lit dungeons of this castle. You don't really know what side she's on, but she's sassy and spunky and cool and likes to kill people. She's always in suits. Yeah, although they, she starts out in very masculine clothing and then as the movie progresses she's in less and less clothing and and is looking more feminine probably uh that was some brilliant idea of jess franco to get his rocks off that's to make the audience think (laughs) oh this really masculinized woman from the beginning of the movie is actually she's really a, a hot sexy woman by the end aren't they all uh, Neil and Smith and Dr. Petrie are there. They're like off vacationing together and like on a fishing vacation in Scotland. There's something really pretty homoerotic going on between the two of them, except <laughs> that in one of these movies, there's some reference to Dr. Petrie seeing prostitutes. We assume female pro. No, yeah, because he says Neil and Smith finds a blonde hair, a long blonde hair on uh, Petrie. I think it was the. The blood, because it was uh, it was the one where Nalen Smith gets uh, gets the deadly kiss, and yeah, Petrie has been out with uh, prostitutes in that movie. So I believe that they are a romantic couple who will sometimes have flings with the opposite sex. That's the best I can figure. Because they all go off vacationing together, and uh, there's another German scientist in this, and it's not clear what this scientist is supposed to do. He understands how the like, cause it's the, the way to freeze water has something to do with opium. Does it? <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's some formula of like infusing opium. I like, but that's about, I mean like I, yeah, yeah. I was fully, my brain was shut off by the time <laughs> this movie was happening. <laughs> well, the scientist that he really needs to, uh, to do whatever he's trying to do has a bad heart and is refusing to do whatever Fu Manchu says because he's just going to die anyway. And But Fu Manchu gives the heart of one of his flunkies to this scientist. Like there's a heart transplant. And uh... Wait, the, this is the best part of this movie is that the doctor, he, he kidnaps this other doctor, right? This British doctor and his girlfriend. 
to do a heart transplant, which has like never been done before. Fu Manchu's like, you have to save this guy with the bad heart. Uh, it, you have to do it. And he says like, but if you do it, obviously like it's going to like kill everyone in the world or whatever, because of this like water freezing thing. And this other doctor, this, this British doctor that gets kidnapped, he's like, well, I can't, you know, I have to do this for Fu Manchu because I can't let this man die. And meanwhile, the only way to get this heart transplant is for him to literally kill another man. <laughs> but of course, that guy's Asian. So that's okay. Got your, I got your priorities, doctor. Yeah. That in the fact... Nobody's ever done this operation before. Can you do it? And the guy's like, yup. Yeah. Like, no hesitation. But that's in keeping with all of the science in any of these movies. That's the power of male confidence right there. <laughs> this movie like, is so cheaply made. Like, it uses footage from a bunch of other movies, including one Fu Manchu movie. The one with um, with Burt Kwok, actually, with Kato. Um, so they have, like, the whole climactic scene from... The Brides of Fu Manchu uh, just cut into the beginning of this movie, but making it seem like Fu Manchu is responsible for creating the iceberg that sunk the Titanic, I guess, except it's in the tropics. So, but it's using footage from an old Titanic movie. Yeah, they're, they're using footage from A Night to Remember from 1958 and just saying it's an ocean liner, but it's clearly the Titanic. <laughs> And clearly a model. It's like clearly from a different movie that it's much older. And then there's a big, there's a really extended like Fu Manchu destroying a dam scene for what reason I don't know. But and that's clearly from another movie. And they really like Franco is able to really extend the length of this film with with this footage from other movies. But somehow this is not the worst of the Fu Manchu movies. Because it has great lighting. There's great rainbow, like, bisexual lighting in this. And it's not sleazy. It's actually Uncle Jess is behaving himself with this movie. This one, They're back to making more PG-rated Fu Manchu movies for some reason. And I'm sure somewhere, you know, somebody can tell us why this one is uh, not an adults-only film like the, the last couple were. But uh, I think the lack of sleaze forced... Uh, franco to actually think about having some interesting scenes like he couldn't just put boobs in and expect people to be entertained he shows up as a really fun character it's like some turkish corrupt official police inspector or something that was him right yeah i mean that this movie we spend more time with the henchmen in this one which is like a welcome reprieve from all the boring british guys yeah the less these movies focus on Nalen Smith and Dr. Petrie, the better. Definitely. And they really have to because there's nothing left for these guys to do. Like, they have to show up because they are Fu Manchu's main nemeses. But uh, other than that, they leave all the uh, action to everybody else. Well, you know, I, I was um, reading there as uh, AV Club had an article from a while back that was ranking each of these Fu Manchu movies. And there was a, a quote in this article that, um, says even Harry Allen Towers in a featurette produced by Blue Underground in 2003 marveled at what Franco had accomplished quote I said to Jesus when I viewed the print I said oh you've done something that was impossible you've successfully killed Fu Manchu 
<laughs> so that's how wonderful this movie is. Yeah. But I feel like that's also a lot of that is his fault. That's Tower's fault because there was not 100%. <laughs> there was not enough money to actually make a film, but he insisted that Franco make the film anyway. And so like that's the worst thing about this movie. It's just so cheap looking and you know, there wasn't enough money to actually film any of the stuff that it needed to film to make it exciting at all. So I blame Harry Allen, not uh, not Jesus for killing off Fu Manchu. I mean, I, I blame the fact that they they never should have been making these movies in 1960s. Anyhow. This actually wasn't the final Fu Manchu movie ever created. Peter Sellers last movie was a Fu Manchu movie where he played both Nalen Smith and Fu Manchu, and it's terrible. I only vaguely remember seeing it as a kid, but I did see it. The fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. It's one of the worst things that Peter Sellers ever made. 1980. I love that we're both Peter Sellers fans, and yet whenever we talk about him on this podcast, we're like, ah, oh, it's awful. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> he made so many crappy movies. But he just he really has that did. British actor work ethic where it's like, I just gotta keep making them. That Michael Caine thing. I don't need to read the script. Just put me on set, pay me, and I'll do what I have to do. Pretty much. Well, so how do you feel about your Fu Manchu Odyssey that you dragged me to? <laughs> I love that you hated these and uh, got a taste of what I feel when I watch the, the James Bond ripoff movies. God, those are so much breezier than this. They weren't good, but I, I found them easier to get through than the average bootleg Bond. I don't have anything deeper to say about these. I just, I, I'm really caught up on this why this character exists <laughs> other than just stark pure racism. Like, like what does it mean when you have a super master villain who's meant to be the smartest man in the entire world and he's Chinese, but he's played by a white guy. Like, did they think it was unbelievable to actually cast a Chinese guy because then they cast his daughter. She's Chinese. I think we're just still stuck in the era where it's like, we need, a name actor in the leading role and there weren't enough British Asians or Asian Americans in the biz for them to find somebody with enough of a draw. Not even that there weren't enough, but that they were all shut out. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's by design. There weren't enough. Yeah. But I mean, what about your favorite movie? The seven faces of Dr. Lau. Well, we're going to have to watch that movie and talk about it because there's definitely inexcusable racism in that movie, but it's less, I mean, like I eat the thing with Fu Manchu is that it's about him. Like he has to be Chinese. I think this character, cause he's so, it's like, he's just so based in heavy stereotype. And I would argue that the seven faces of Dr. Lau it starts with stereotype to undermine it, to then tell you something larger about humanity, which doesn't, again, doesn't excuse the, the use of yellow face, yeah. <laughs> but like Fu Manchu never, like we never spend any time with him. Like we don't know who the hell he is. And that's like, what is the least fun part about this? Like if we really were spending time with him and like his like scheming and, actually following the villain but seeing him get thwarted each time you know then we have pinky in the brain like that's what <laughs> that's what i'm like great this is this is a great show but we don't even get that you know and this is of course ignoring for a minute the like 
egregious racism that there's really no version of this i think that could be that great i mean like it's just it's too mired again in all these stereotypes like every aspect of this guy is built off of a stereotype i really don't think that i mean they had to make fu manchu chinese but i don't think that that was an instigating factor for these films to be made i think harry allen towers said oh super villains are hot right now who's the most famous super villain and fu manchu probably because he loved the sax romer books he's like oh let's let's do him he's great everybody knows fu manchu he's such a famous character and you can sort of tell that the chinese aspect of fu manchu only comes in in minor ways like there's a certain exoticism like the scarfs that are used for strangling people, you know, there's just certain like exotic oriental list things that it brings in, but not that many, really. It's not that excited by the orientalism, really. It's more excited about just this ultimate evil supervillain who cannot be killed and comes back every couple of years with a new plan to take over the world. And like Sumuru is even less coded Asian than than Fu Manchu like only very vaguely is there anything Eastern about her I mean she yeah in the movies she just comes across more as you know just fear of lesbians kind of thing it's like this sort of feminist way more coded lesbian than coded Asian uh, yeah I mean but I just Fu Manchu I don't I don't I don't agree with I mean like he because he there's still so much about Fu Manchu that we still see in how you know Chinese characters are portrayed today in a lot of media or even in the news. I feel like like this sort of idea that like China is behind everything. You know, it's like this sort of paranoia about China and what the Chinese are capable of. It's like all of this stuff is so relevant. So it's hard. I, I just like I can't look at this and, and see it as like, oh, no, he's just a character who happens to be Chinese. Like it's just so interconnected to like centuries of racism <laughs> but yet there's this weird i mean like i said earlier there's this weird like respect that he's given and i just don't really know what to do with that either because again this idea that like oh the the chinese are smart and, and overachievers is, is just as racist <laughs> there is something to be said for the fact that you love when Lin Tang shows up in each one of these movies. Like, choose who you're following more than anybody. You're like, oh, what's Lin Tang going to get up to in this movie? Because she actually does things. Fu Manchu just strolls around his palace slowly and makes proclamations. Yeah, Lin Tang's definitely a more interesting character. But I mean, like, again, it's like she's certainly riddled with her own stereotypes of, again, just being like, you know, cruel. And this idea of the, of Chinese cruelty being somehow even worse than any other type of cruelty and, you know, and a villain that's enjoyable, but, you know, uh. <laughs> but she is more fun, uh, you know, as a character for sure, just as you said, because she does stuff. She at least leaves her palace when she's not being exploded into the next palace <laughs> or however they get from place to place. I mean, and there's also got to be some cold war paranoia behind reviving this character too like you were saying i mean they're we're still real wrapped up in fear of communism and uh you know they're even more chinese communists than russian ones 
even though the Russians were the ones that we really focused on as being the, the most nefarious at the time. Yeah, well, Fu Manchu's little bit about undermining the system by taking down cops one by one was pretty good. <laughs> that was, that was yeah. like the closest we got to like, you know, anything that was vaguely political in, in any of these movies. I mean, like I, that, even that would have been more fun if they had made him more overtly communist and evil. I think I could have gotten behind that in a, like an ironic kind of way. But you know what? We did it. And what is what else is the point of this podcast than to force ourselves to watch stuff that we just that makes us want to gouge our eyes out? <laughs> I just wish that we had ten more series of Fu Manchu movies made in the sixties that I could force you to watch. You haven't heard the last of me, Bart. You haven't heard the last of bootleg bond though. We did mention because in, in order to keep this, this podcast going and to keep Bart from strangling me, we are unfortunately going to move a little bit away from bootleg bond movies from here on out. And we're going to start doing more like genre movies. So that means that we'll very likely get back to bootleg bond at some point. I would love to at least continue to do it once a season. But now we can, you know, we can stretch our wings a little bit. And uh, I think it'll be just as fun and miserable time for both of us. So I'm totally down for it. We're going to explore other little pocket genres, mini genres, films where they made a whole lot of these crappy things. And we want to figure out why. Like, I'm, I'm thinking that's going to be kind of our MO with this bootleg bond spin off from here on in oh but here's where i should have said because you haven't heard the last of bootleg bond go, 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 go. you've been listening to cinema 60 with bart deloro and jenna ipcar the theme song is io la conosceva bene by piero piccioni the closing theme is go go gorilla by the ideals check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material that's cinema60.com and follow the show on twitter and facebook at cinema60 podcast thanks for tuning in